This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have Jeff Sinha. 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 Who is a New Zealand-born traveler who uh, has spent the... uh, Last 20 years in Japan. We'll be talking about Japan. I guess that's right. Jeff, you were born and raised in New Zealand. How did you end up living in Japan? Oh, hi, Marvin. Uh, Thank you for letting me on this uh, show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Yeah, that's right. I, I was born and raised in Christchurch. And um, um, I guess uh, my interest in Japanese culture um, first got developed at university when I um, I started practicing uh, Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art. Um, before that, uh, my only experience uh, was having to study Japanese language at uh, at high school, um, but it just seemed too difficult. You know, there were three alphabets. And uh, I just couldn't figure that. I couldn't uh, get that through my head. That why are there three alphabets in, in for one language? Um, and at high school, I I, I solved that um, problem by resolving never to go to Japan if I could help it. Um, but Aikido was Aikido was interesting. It's a a form of um, self defense which redirects an attacker's momentum and energy against him or herself um, and uh, doing Aikido I practiced um, the basic phrases you know before you uh, train and after you train and how to count properly and how to bow properly before and after training and um, so that kind of got me interested in Japan and Japanese culture um, but the big thing was um, um, meeting my wife, Kaori, uh, my future wife. Uh, she's Japanese, and um, uh, that was really a turning point in my in my life. Um, we started going out together. Then we got we met in Christchurch, um, and we started going out together. We got engaged uh, and married, and um, I was studying English literature and linguistics at university, and I wanted to become. Um, an English teacher at high school in New Zealand, but um, Kauri uh, said uh, said to me one day, "Well, why don't you come over to Japan and teach uh, teach English in, in Japan?" And uh, I said, "Okay," and uh, that's how we started. That's how I started to live in in Japan. How did you find that? Um, especially in the early days, right? The early days were. Uh, a time of of incredible change, um, going from um, what I considered, you know, uh, big city Christchurch, 
um, which had closing days on Sunday and uh, all the shops were closed on a Sunday. And um, I remember standing in Shinjuku Station, which is a, a, a center of business and entertainment in um, Tokyo, and and just watching the streams of people coming towards me and uh, just being amazed, you know, at, at, at the sheer number of people and, and how uh, efficient the trains worked and the, the transportation and everything just worked, you know, it just, it just flowed very, very smoothly. Um, yeah, it, it, it took me a, a, quite a while to get used to Japanese culture, but I started training uh, Aikido, Aikido over there. Um, and that certainly helped the transition. <clears throat> um, when uh, when our first son was born, um, we were living in um, Tokyo and we had a house in Tokyo. And I guess uh, I really grew up. Um, I became an adult. Uh, in Japan, you know, I did the normal things that adults do. Um, bought a house and uh, had a career in teaching and um, uh, raising kids. And but being in Japan just gave it that that kind of unique twist to it, uh, which was certainly interesting. And um, I think uh, looking back. Um, the education uh, of of our kids in Japan and and the way that uh, schools are structured in Japan was something that I was really impressed by. Um, yeah, it, it it often it often comes across quite negatively that um, you know kids have to study and and uh, go to cram school after school and and then come back from cram school and and continue studying, but. Um, Elementary school is quite different, and uh, there's a couple of things that I really like, which I can talk about if you like. Yes, please. Um, well, first of all, elementary school, there's no real tests for the kids. It's more about socialization and getting on with the other kids in your school and in, in your class. Um, there's less pressure So on that's kids. important, the socialization. Very, yeah, that's very important, that you, that you can learn to get along with other classmates and work together and um is it different there than here in that regard more intense work on socialization well i remember i can only talk about my experience um but uh, there were always tests when we were uh, at school and there was always the the progress reports and things like that and um but uh yeah i'd, I'd say it is quite different is there bullying in Japanese schools? Yeah. Yeah, there'd definitely be bullying, but um, hopefully, you know, we didn't really experience it with our kids. So, um, I mean, is, is the classroom more controlled? Um, yes, definitely more controlled uh, in terms of seating. Like uh, one of the things that surprised my son when when he came over here was, um, one, uh, there were sofas in the classroom and and kids were allowed to sit uh, wherever they liked. They could they could lie on the floor if they wanted. They could eat uh, 
eat healthy snacks during class, <laughs> which wouldn't happen in Japan. You have to sit in a desk. But the desks do get arranged into groups so that kids work in groups. It didn't happen when I was a child either. Not when I was a kid. Well, actually, I was. I remember being assigned a desk, and they took roles by the desk. Right. Um, one of the things I was really impressed by with um, Japanese schooling was the school lunches. Um, so, in Japanese public schools, we put our kids into into public school system. A hot lunch is provided for all students and teachers every day. Um, parents pay for it, but it's subsidized, so it costs about two dollars fifty uh, per day. And um, this tradition began after World War Two, when there was massive uh, malnutrition yeah. among school students. Um, and the meals are—they're they, all planned by uh, nutrition experts, and they're healthy and uh, well balanced. Um, they usually have rice and fish and soup and a small carton of milk and a. Um, usually a seasonal piece of uh, fruit for dessert. Um, and uh, there, there are many benefits to providing uh, the school lunches. Students are more healthy, alert, and can concentrate more in class, I think. And um, Another thing is that students take turns serving each other, um, so they learn about responsibility and clearing up, and um, the teachers can also teach them about proper nutrition. And uh, I really love that tradition of uh, having hot school lunches. Um, Do the kids eat their lunches? Yes, yes. Um, so they would be expected to eat their lunches, wouldn't they? Yes, yeah. So in Japanese schools, you have expectations for your students? To eat their lunches? Well, to eat their lunches, to be have a certain amount of discipline. Yeah, to sit in a, a chair that the teacher thinks is useful for them to be using. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, uh, it's expected, I think, and that's probably an unspoken expectation as as schooling goes on uh, that you clean your plate and that you that you eat all all the food, but. The food is honestly really good. I was a I was a assistant language teacher for the first year that I was in Japan, and uh, I got to eat the lunch uh, every day. And uh, um, yeah, absolutely no complaints except for the squid. Uh, there were a couple of times we had squid in the in the school lunches, and I didn't like that. <laughs> Squid's one of the cheaper fish foods, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, they they served a whole squid. Um, stuffed with uh, flavored rice. Mm. Sounds pretty good now, but at the time I, w I wasn't into it. <laughs> yeah, I remember squid tastes different than most fish. It's yeah. much chewier. Very rubbery, yeah. yeah. It's teaching profession's a real profession, isn't it? It's a vocation, isn't it, in Japan? Yeah, it's definitely a career path. Um, and for foreigners uh, in Japan, it's, uh, it's a good career path. Um, I think your daughter's doing the JET. Japan, yeah. yeah Japan. You want to explain about that? I'm not sure what it stands for. Japan um, experience of teaching, JET. It's actually for experiencing English. English teaching. And that may be one reason why they're often sent to rural areas. If 
Um, but you can be there from one to three years, and if you really like it, you can ask for an, an extension of another three years. Yeah. And from what my daughter tells me, teachers stay in an area for usually five years, and they're, they're moved. Right, public school system, yeah, they, they get transi- transitioned uh, around uh, the, the, the province or the region that they're in. And they're tend to be really dedicated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, teachers are really... They're respected? Yes. Uh, of course, it depends on the teacher, you know. Sure. <laughs> I could tell a couple of stories. Um, but um, most of the teachers are really uh, sincere, um, hardworking. They get involved with the kids, um, the students on a personal level during clubs, which are also important. Um mm. And they'll they'll log in some long hours as well at the school. Could you talk about the clubs? Yeah, there's all sorts of clubs. We I got involved with the English club um, later when I was um, I, I moved on from the public school to the private school system. Um, my school actually had a rugby club, and uh, I was at that school for eight years. And uh, I think we lost uh, for the first. Six years, the boys, uh, they lost for the first six years. And then we had a new teacher come in and um, my desk was behind his desk. So I could see, I, I could kind of peer over um, his shoulder on his computer. And, and uh, all of the time he was just replaying. He, he'd, he'd video record the, the matches and he'd replay the, the matches. And he really, he was a really uh, focused uh, coach and uh, I think in the the second to last year I was there that the the students got second place and in the last year I think they got first place. So it was uh, it really did depend on that teacher. He was uh, he was a real motivating force. What's it like raising a family in Japan? Yeah, it's unique. It, it puts a, a unique swing on things. Um, you. It's really important um, to to have a network of other families, and uh, we belong to a network of uh, international families. And we'd meet once a month and go out to parks and um, overnight um, uh, at like uh, rural uh, locations yeah. at huts and things like that. And it's really important to have that network. Um, we got our kids involved in swimming. Quite early, um, they could uh, they could swim pretty much before they could walk. So we were taking them to swimming classes five days a week, and it was just a really fun thing to have kids who, you know, they're not afraid to to get into the water and to enjoy the water and uh, things. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really positive experience. What are some of the differences between raising children in Japan and? Raising children in New Zealand? Um, the schooling, definitely. Um, there's, I think, um, I think uh, there's more emphasis in the schools on putting responsibility to maintain the school on the kids rather than have a janitor who looks after or a caretaker who looks after the school. Um, and I thought that was a really good idea. Um, the kids, um, after the classes have finished, they'll all uh, 
um, have an assigned role. Some kids will take bags and, and uh, uh, long chopsticks or, or, or tongs out into the grounds and pick up the trash. Other kids get assigned to, to clean the bathrooms and the toilets. And um, it's quite an I- iconic uh, image of um, kids with uh, wet cleaning cloths in their hands and they're running along the hallways uh, with their hands on the floor, cleaning cleaning the floor, and running backwards and forwards, cleaning the floor. Um, but I think that responsibility is good. Uh, you know, there's no need um, to have a janitor when you have a couple of hundred uh, uh, young kids who can who can do the cleaning for you. And it also means that the kids aren't going to, um, they're less likely to carelessly drop uh, any trash or rubbish when they know that they or their friends are going to be have to clean it up later. So, so in Canal they learn ex- community and responsibility early on. Exactly. Yes, they learn community. Yeah, and responsibility. Isn't that something you actually have to learn? I think so. To an degree, I mean, we all may have social instincts, but to take responsibility in community, you probably have to be taught. I think so, yeah. And especially, it's especially important at a young age, which is why I was so impressed uh, with the elementary school system. Do you think that uh, this is something we're missing out on? To some degree? Um... I think uh, I think it's just different. It's not better or worse. Uh, it's just different. Well, it's different. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I often wonder about that. Mm. I'm not sure how it would go down in New Zealand if uh, if we suddenly see that kids have to start cleaning the school. Well, I think it says something about us. Right. I mean, why should it bother us? I think I don't know if it bother is the right word, but um, there definitely would it be unacceptable. There'd be some resistance. It'd be, I, yeah, I, I realize that, mm, mm. but I'm questioning mm. why. Mm. And I can see both legitimate concerns and less legitimate concerns. Definitely, yeah. There's pros and cons to it. Yeah. Um, probably. The cons are more prevalent if you've been doing it for years and it's worked. Mm. Yeah. Also, you're not taking anybody's job away if it's it's been going on. That's a good point too. Yeah. 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 It is definitely good to see see the kids out there cleaning and uh, and and doing their bit for the school. Um, and that translates. You did mention um, clubs. So as the kids get older, from elementary to junior high, so the Japanese system is um, five years of elementary school and then three years of junior high school and then another three years of high school. Um, that really translates later when uh, the clubs become much more intense and uh, you know participation in clubs is, is kind of expected and... Um, and like uh, basketball clubs has a, have a manager, uh, which who's a student of the the club, and um, 
um, yeah, just as the kids get older, their involvement becomes, I think, is expected to become um, much more intense. Uh, what's how's how are other aspects of family life in Japan? Are there as many single parent families in Japan as there are in New Zealand? Um, that's a point where Okinawa and mainland Japan differ. I think mainland Japan not so much. Uh, Okinawa there are more kids for one, and more single parents as well. well why the difference? I'm not too sure. Could it be the American basis? Not too sure about that. That's about. It's nearly fifty years now. Oh, it's more than fifty years. This is seventy years. Yeah, just yeah. after the war. After the war, and until nineteen seventy-two, Okinawa was a part of Japan, a part of America, and then there was the re, uh, the giving back of Okinawa to the Japanese. <laughs> um, another thing that I'd talk about is New Year. That's a really good thing with um, for families. Um, that's when Christmas is not really so much part of Japanese culture, but has become part of Japanese culture. I think more is more like a um, a commercial event or an excuse to spend money. Uh, kind of like Black Friday in New Zealand has become uh, more and more visible in, in advertising and commercials, but. Um, New Year's is definitely a special time of year in, in Japan and uh, families um, come together to celebrate it and uh, like it's, it's, it's such a special time that if, if, if anyone brings a boyfriend or, or girlfriend home over New Year, it kind of means that it's, that relationship is getting serious and uh, there could be a proposal later on, uh, especially bring them home to meet the parents over New Year. Um, but there are, one of the things that I love about Japan is the traditions. Um, one of the traditions of New Year is called All Soji, which means the big cleanup. And uh, so families will um, will generally just clean their entire house from top to bottom. And um, in my neighborhood, what happened was anything burnable uh, gets taken to the local park and it, it gets piled up. Uh, in a big, massive pyramid uh, in the middle of, of the grounds of the park. And um, by the time the whole neighborhood's contributed their, their old chairs or tables or table legs or um, wooden, wooden uh, toys or things like that, the, the pyramid's huge. And, um, and then the day comes when um, everybody, the whole neighborhood gathers together and uh, the pyramids set alight. You can actually, um, uh, you can actually write wishes, you know, um, that you hope for the new year or things that you you didn't like about the last year that you want to let go of and get rid of, and you can put that on the bonfire as well. And then the whole thing is lit, and everybody celebrates, of course, by uh, drinking beer and sake and uh, uh, eating delicious soups and things like that. So. Um, for families, I think the traditions and the, the festivals, which are seasonal and um, pretty much year-long, uh, is a really good part of Japanese culture you know, to raise kids with.
Japan's, um, in a way, fairly traditionally, fairly traditional society and culture, yet they also are very modern and technological. Can you talk about this some more? <laughs> um, yeah, without a doubt, um, cities in Japan are, are really fast-moving. Um, one of the one of my f- one of the things that I kind of stuck in my mind um, when I worked uh, in the center of Tokyo as a, as a teacher um, in the morning you would get off a crowded train like a really crowded train uh, and you'd step into like Shinjuku Station and you'd be walking along and it's very quiet like people are just in their own space you know there's not a lot of conversation or or talking going on around you um and people are in a hurry of course to get from one train to the next um and the floors are really polished linoleum or or stone floors and businessmen and women are wearing their 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 business shoes and you can really hear the feet so you don't so much hear the people talking to each other or things like that but you hear the feet of hundreds of people walking hurriedly to the next train and uh for some reason that just really stuck in in my mind as iconic japanese uh, an iconic thing which you, you can only hear in japan trains are something else in japan aren't they yeah yeah um they also have their own culture i would say um yeah can you talk about their oh, oh, what's it I guess there's a lot of difference between long-distance travel and commuting. Right, right. Commuting, trains are maximized for their efficiency. And so the drivers are kind of, um, you know, they're under the, they're under the, the pump um, to make sure everything works well and there are no accidents to hold up um, the next train coming. And, and of course, that would that would just have a domino effect on all the other trains. Um, train drivers are really cool in Japan, I think. Uh, you know, they have their their hand signals and, and voice signals um, before the train takes off. And you'll often see kids imitating the, the, the train drivers as they, as they do their hand signals from the train. And um, there's definitely a hierarchy of um, of train drivers as well. There's the the regular local train drivers, and then there's the uh, there was something called a romance car, romance train, which which uh, went from Tokyo down to Hakone, which is a famous onsen area, and uh, the driver of that train would sit elevated above the carriage in this kind of um, futuristic cabin above the carriage and just look really really cool um so there's definitely a hierarchy of train drivers but um yeah yeah it's just a really good experience Mm. i have to say i took a bullet train when i was in japan for a short time right and i've never traveled in such comfort in my life (laughs) any car or any I yeah. had, I was I was thinking, oh, this is J- Japan. I probably wouldn't have enough room for my feet. I could have, well, I could have slept in the, <laughs> in the uh, seat. <laughs> had a picnic on it. Yeah, comfort. And it was very smooth, and of course, very fast. 
Right. Oh, yeah. And the lunch boxes that you get on there are so delicious. Um, yeah, bullet trains are really good. Are there other things about Japan that um, indicate their technology? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's all sorts. Um, the the skyscrapers, the uh, the the electronic stores. Um, if you're kind of a um, if you're heavily into electronics and you want to get the best deals, uh, any of your listeners who are, who are listening, um, then Akihabara would be the the area to go to. That's where uh, there's there's a type of person called an otaku, and otaku roughly translates into um, geek, but in a positive in a positive uh, connotation. So uh, somebody who's really really into something. Is called an otaku, and uh, there's a lot of otaku in Akihabara. So any of your listeners who are really into electronics, uh, I recommend that they head down to uh, Akihabara. Um, but not only electronics. There's uh, music, a lot of J-pop, um, dramas, TV dramas. Um, but the thing I like about Japan, which I think Everybody notices at some stage or another, which um, really, really appeals to a lot of people. Um, my first year, I was teaching at the YMCA, uh, an English teacher at the YMCA in the center of Tokyo. And this was the center of Tokyo's um, business district. And so I would catch a cr crowded train after teaching at the junior high school. And uh, I was an evening English teacher. And I'd get off that train and I'd be in the absolute, you know, center of, of Tokyo's business district. And But to balance that out, not far away was the Imperial Palace. And that's where the emperor of Japan lives, you know. And uh, the grounds of the Imperial Palace are just beautiful. You know, the, the surrounded, the, the entire palace is surrounded by a moat and you have massive... Uh, stone walls um, and inside that is just the most peaceful uh, gardens and environment you could imagine and that's right in the heart of Tokyo and are people welcome to visit that yeah you can you can visit certain areas um, but not you know the, sure. the the areas that that are private residences Um and, and very often, um, when you're just wandering around Tokyo, downtown Tokyo, um, you'll, you'll be walking past skyscra skyscrapers and, and shops and restaurants, and then suddenly you'll come to a small temple, like a, a Shinto temple or a Buddhist temple, and there'll be trees, massive trees growing up next to the temple. There'll be uh, maybe a lake or a small stream with a rock garden. And um, it's just that kind of so unexpected and yet so welcome, you know, because sometimes you just need to take five or somewhere to eat your lunch. And um, going into those temples is just a really, really, um, into the temple grounds is just a really, really good experience, which I think it's kind of iconic of, of Japanese In culture. the smaller Japanese cities, well, I 
I guess it wouldn't be small compared to to Auckland, but small compared to to Tokyo. Right. Do people um, use public transport, and did they use bicycles? Because I was, I stayed in Kyoto, and mm-hmm. a lot of the suburban areas and a lot of the housing, you'd find a bicycle with a child's seat and an adult seat. Yeah. So you got the impression, and also the bus service was quite good. Yes. Um, would that be typical? Would people have cars, but do they also take other forms of transport? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, um, bicycles are usually used to get from home to the station, and then you catch the train to work. So you'll, you'll, you'll take your bike to the station, and then you'll catch the train into the city. Um, and yeah... There's also the child seat on the back and sometimes the front of the bicycle. Um, and uh, we had a bicycle like that, an electric bike. We'd, we'd have one child uh, in the front and one child in the back. And we'd, we'd pedal away to go shopping or to the park and things like that. Yeah. In um, Japan, when people go on holidays, I know that many families have cars, but... Do people use the trains for holidays sometimes? Yeah, it depends. It depends. Um, I can only speak from my experience. Um, if we were going to Hakone, we would take the romance car and uh, we'd, we'd go down and, and visit the onsens for a day trip. Uh, if we were going to visit the family uh, who lived a couple of hours drive away, um, we would load up the car and, and drive down because we needed the car to get around. How good is transport in rural areas? Oh yeah, you did ask that. Um, it's very good. Yeah. So the trains pretty much go they, they, they're spread all over mm-hmm. Japan. They aren't so much about making a profit for the train line. It's more about providing a service and for the good of the, the Japanese economy as a whole, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know about that. I think the train, uh, sta- the the train companies are definitely profit motivated. Um, but the thing is that they run on power. They run on electricity, and electricity, of course, comes from nuclear plants in Japan. So that's a lot cheaper than uh, than elsewhere. Um, uh, we lived on a line called the Odaku line, and that was that has its own kind of personality. There's the, the Odaku line has its own shops, uh, and every station is, becomes a community hub, which is another thing, mm. another reason that I like public transportation. It brings people together, you know. Could we have better public transport? I definitely... It's a loaded question, but uh, yeah, I think we could. Um, instead of building, I think instead of building bigger and faster roads, um, which is basically a medium-term solution in my opinion, I think um, a, a better, more efficient bus system, maybe using uh, electric buses would be uh, a better solution to that. I think, yeah, public transportation just brings people together. And wherever you have a train station in Japan, 
there's always going to be shops, even if it's just a small train station. There'll be there'll be a soba shop or a noodle shop or shop or. And then from that, people, people, you know, these these little stations grow into into towns and then, and then villages and, um, finally you have you know a, a big not sorry not villages into cities, and uh, finally you have like a big metropolitan area which has grown around the community hub of the station. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to play some music and then okay. we'll come back. That was a bit of traditional Japanese koto music. Very nice. And we're talking with Jeff Shish. Sinha. Sinha. And he's spent the last 20 years raising a family in Japan. And so we're talking about life in Japan and Japanese culture. Uh, Japan's population is aging and getting smaller. Could you talk about what effect this is having on Japan? Hmm. Yeah, I think this is definitely uh, an important issue in Japan. Um, do you know about the Worldometer website, Marvin? No, I've heard the name, but that's it there. Yeah, and it has like a in real time um, 
counter of the world's population. Um, it's a digital counter which shows the world population in real time, and you can also look at each country's population. Um, when I first found this site, China had the highest population, but now that uh, honor uh, belongs to India. Um, and when you look at India, the counter goes up like every 1.5 seconds. So another person is born every one, every 1.5 seconds. But if you look at Japan, you'll notice it's very different. There's, it's very still. There's no change. And then after about 40 or 50 seconds, it'll decrease by one. So, yeah, Japan's population is, is, is decreasing. You can see it at their Worldometer uh, website, if you Does like. Does that mean they lose one person a month, a minute, for instance? Yeah, about every 50 seconds. So the amount of births uh, is less than the amount of people who are dying. Um, and Japan has uh, about 122 million people at the moment. It's ranked 12th in the world uh, of populations, but by 2050, uh, it's predicted to be about 103 million with uh, a ranking of about 17, 17th place. And it's aging too, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely aging. Is uh, that a... The usual way things are, when your population decreases, you're also usually aging. There, it could be a correlation there, yeah, yeah. And um, there were two massive, um, there was the baby boomer generation uh, after the war, and they are now in their late 60s, early 70s. Um, and then the children of that generation, which is pretty much my generation, uh, in our 40s and 50s, 28% um, of Japan's people are aged 65 years or older. Um, and they, the Japanese are famous for living a long time as well. So they, the men will live uh, into their mid-80s. And it's, it's a good uh, mid-80s, you know, kind of like yourself, Marvin. Uh, still very active and... Um, uh, getting out there and doing things well into their into their seventies um, and eighties. When I was um, when we lived in Tokyo, um, I volunteered for a couple of years at a mountain hut, and I was a mule pretty much. I would carry uh, ice or wood or water um, up the back track to the hut, and uh, we would cook uh, meals for the. Um, for the, the hikers and who visited the hut. And uh, one of the things that really stuck out for me was the, the average age of mountain climbers in Japan are in their 60s and 70s. So when you added me to that mix, the, the age dropped like by about 5 or 10 years. But uh, on average, they were really, really healthy, happy, well-traveled, um, and extremely positive people, and it really changed my attitude about aging. It didn't seem so scary. Um, I I started to look forward, you know, to the aging process and finally being retired and being able to travel and climb mountains on my own, and like they were doing. Um, 
so yeah the the population is aging but it's a it's a pretty positive thing in japan uh, i'm not sure what it bodes for how it bodes for the economy okay you uh family moved to Okinawa, perhaps partially because of the, the good climate, or warm climate. The warmer like. climate. Uh, will you tell us a bit about um, Okinawa and what's the difference between uh, Okinawa and the rest of Japan? Mm. Yeah, Okinawa is, in case your listeners don't know, um, Okinawa is a, a, an island or a group of islands closer to Taiwan than Japan itself. Uh, I think your daughter lives in Tokushima, which is near Kyushu. So Kyushu is the, the most southern main island of Japan, and Okinawa is still um, a good hour's flight from Kyushu south. Uh, it's a tropical climate. It's the main reason that we moved there is uh, um, to enjoy the the tropical lifestyle. Um, there's, I'm sure some people have heard uh, of the Battle of Okinawa, um, uh, which was the last battle between America and Japan during the uh, Second World War. And um, Hacksaw Ridge, um, letters from Iwo Jima, um, the Pacific, uh, they show some pretty gnarly. Um, footage from from that battle um and there's a lot of americans who who's who are stationed in okinawa as well um military bases cover about 20 percent of the island and if you look at your hand you know 20 percent would be like the thumb so it's 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 the good 20 percent of of the island too like the very strategically located uh military bases in okinawa uh, and that's a major point of contention with many of the locals, especially uh, the older people um, whose parents uh, had, you know, first-hand experience of the battle and, and war. And um, you can get, still visit um, many of the, the caves um, which were used during the Second World War, the Battle of Okinawa, where uh, locals hid uh, from, from the fighting. And uh, sometimes, well, often they hid with Japanese soldiers, and as a consequence of that, they also died uh, with the Japanese soldiers in those caves. Um, it was a pretty gruesome uh, battle uh, to finish the Second World War. Um, but despite the number of protests um, about the military occupation of Japan, there's very little that's done about it. Um, which kind of leads me um, to briefly talk about Article 9 of, <coughs> of the uh, Japanese Constitution. Um, Article 9 outlaws war as a means to settle international disputes uh, involving Japan. So Japan has lost the right to um, solve international problems militarily. And um, it's a no-war clause of the Japanese constitution. And uh, I think 
that makes Japan more reliant on America for its military. And in return, Japan hosts, uh, to put it nicely, American Marines, Air Force and Navy. And unfortunately for Okinawa, 90% of these forces that are 90% of the forces in Japan are focused in Okinawa. Um, and this clause, I think, is coming under reinterpretation with the rise of Chinese power uh, militarily. And um, there was a point uh, where the Prime Minister of Japan, um, Abe, I think, wanted to uh, reinterpret that so that Japan could use force. I think he was uh, overturned by public opinion. But it just shows how close um, Japan can come to simply either ignoring or deliberately reinterpreting um, Article 9, um, uh, especially in times of international crisis. Um, so I guess at the moment, America is Japan's proxy military. And... Uh, yeah, I, I for one hope that Article 9 remains and Japan's military is used primarily for self-defense. It's quite likely to remain even if it's interpreted to suit the government, isn't it? Because they've tried to overturn it with referendum yes. more than once right. and we've soundly defeated each time. Yeah, it's still... I mean, if, it came, if push came to shove, I think... Um, it's quite simple to, to say, well, you know, in this time, we really need to reinterpret it in this way, and that's what we're going to do. I think uh, that's a possibility. Yeah. So that came, uh, that came about as a, as a consequence of Japan's um, military history uh, during World War II and the Japanese Empire, um, which spread throughout Asia. Um, hmm. The first place it spread was would have been um, Korea, wouldn't it? Or would it be Taiwan? I think South Korea and... Um, and then Taiwan. Manchuria in, in China as well. Yeah, they, they actually had a war with Russia over Manchuria uh, before World War One. Yeah. They beat the... Beat the Russians. They beat the Russians. <laughs> Not surprisingly at the time. <laughs> well, it was very surprising at the time. Could you talk about their relationship with the rest of Asia? Oh. Today? Yeah. 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 Um, it's still very strained, I think, because uh, of Japan's history during the war. You know, they, they did a lot of shockingly bad things, and it just goes to show how how much, how different Japan was at that time. Um, today, you, you look at Japan, Japan and it, it's very hard to imagine that Japan went that far right um, in terms of its military. There were instances of extreme um, war crimes in, in Nanking and, you know... It's the, and they still have strange relations with Korea because of the... The way they treated the Koreans. Yeah, there was uh, 
horrific treatment of women, uh, especially, um, and even even more unbelievable was the the actions of Unit Seven Three One. Yeah, lots of horrible things uh, happened. What was Unit Seven Three One? Unit Seven Three One was um, an experimental unit uh, who. Uh, would conduct uh, all sorts of experiments on its prisoners in terms mm-hmm. of um, oh dear. cold treatment mm-hmm. and, and chemicals. One difference between Japan and and Germany, say, is Germany, they had to, but they mm-hmm. did it very thoroughly and fairly willingly, acknowledged what they'd done, mm-hmm. the Holocaust and so on. Mm-hmm. And Japan hasn't as publicly acknowledged or pub- apologized in the same. Mm. Not at all. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the central controversies is Yaskuni Shrine. Um, and uh, that would be Yaskuni Shrine translated, that means, ironically, it means peace country. Mm-hmm. Um, and. The, the Prime Minister and the Emperor still visit uh, Yaskuni Shrine to commemorate the war dead, including, I think, 1,600 war criminals from the Second World War. Um, and that's a major obstacle to peace uh, in Asia with China and South Korea. And I honestly don't think it bodes well for Japan unless they um, do apologize and, and bring that uh, to the surface again. Um, until Japan addresses its past uh, during World War II, I don't think it m- can really move forward with Asia into the into the future. Okay. Well, since we're talking about this, what are your hopes for the future of Japan? My hopes for the future of Japan. Um, well, I hope a lot more people will visit Japan. Um, uh, if your listeners are, are on the fence about visiting Japan, I, I hope that they will take this opportunity to, to make a decision. And uh, if you have family over there, I know that you do, Marvin. And um, uh, it really, really is a great country. Um, I recommend um, going to Japan during September, October, which is autumn. You can see the changing of the uh, the trees and. Um, you can experience the 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 politeness and the 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 efficiency of the culture, and uh, even visit an onsen, which is the hot springs, and uh, just just have a great experience. Um, yeah, certainly, um, my heart is is still in Japan, um, and I only hope the best things for that country. Okay, thanks a lot, Jeff. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about Japan. Thanks for having me, Marvin. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.